Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 12th, 2018. On this week's show, Justin Peters will join us to talk about the North Korean cheer squad, Mike Pence hating figure skater Adam Rippon, and the other people and propaganda outfits that made names for themselves on the opening weekend of the Winter Olympics. Jack Hamilton will also be here to discuss the Cleveland Cavaliers, who traded everyone on their team who isn't LeBron James or J.R. Smith because J.R. Smith ain't going anywhere. And finally, Sports Illustrated's Grant Wall will help us assess what the election of Carlos Cordero as the new president of U.S. soccer means for the future of the sport in America. Joining me here in Washington, D.C. is the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, Mr. Stefan Fatsis. Josh. Hello. Hi. And joining us for our first segment is part-time beer vendor and Slate's intrepid Olympics writer, Justin Peters. Welcome, Justin. Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing great. Doing better than that. Come on, Justin. The Olympics yeah. are on, Justin. It's, the Olympics are on. The Olympics are on. They're on on a 14-hour time delay, which <laughs> is a thing that is happening. Uh, I love it. It's been a great uh, few days. I'm looking forward to the next two weeks. I'm not a big... I don't have a big problem with the time delay. I think it feeds nicely into my life habits. I can watch a little bit in the morning. If I so choose, I can tune on during working hours, which is tune nice. on, and then uh, and then you got your package shit at night, and then you start it, the it next day. You well. start the next day. That's what I like about it. You're into the next day. It's super interesting, actually, to be keeping one eye on NBC's primetime feed that is showing you a lot of stuff that happened uh, hours ago, and then keeping another eye on the live stream that is showing you stuff that is happening immediately, and to sometimes watch those two things merge, where you'll see something happen on the live feed, and then 20 minutes later, you'll see it happen on NBC with a completely different set of announcers, so that sort of interesting. Yeah, but there's also the fact that they've jiggered the schedule in Korea and made like the figure skaters skate at eight in the morning or nine in the morning or 10 in the morning so that it'll be live in prime time. Yeah, it works out for the American viewer. I actually think it's been better as a viewing experience than I had anticipated. There is kind of inevitably stuff that goes on in the middle of the night Eastern time, but there's a lot of live stuff that happens in prime time. There's stuff that happens that's well well timed for the Pacific Coast audience. They've got like live stuff um, in the post prime time, like eleven thirty to one a.m. Eastern block, which has traditionally been like a packaging kind of pointless thing to stay up late and watch. Um, so it's been good. I've been enjoying it. One of the stars of NBC's opening weekend of coverage was Adam Rippon, who skated quite elegantly on Sunday night America time. 
as part of the team competition. Uh, after he got off the ice, he had this to say to NBC's Mike Tirico, beginning with a reference to how he and his American teammate, Mariah Nagasu, did not get to go to the Olympics in 2014. You know, especially tonight, my friend Mariah and I, four years ago, we got in and out. We went back to her house. We climbed up to the roof of her house and we were eating in and out because we were so upset that we weren't at the Olympic Games. And tonight, you know, the Olympics are truly magical because we came out here tonight and we're roommates here um, staying in the Olympic Village. We gave each other a hug and I said, you know, Mariah, we're here. We did it. You know what he did, Justin? He killed the post-skate interview, which is a thing that I think has never happened in the history of television. It's the biggest upset in, uh, in Olympic history. He makes me want to watch these uh, post-event interviews every single time. And that has literally never happened since I've been watching uh, the Olympics. I guess Sage Kotzenberg in 2014 was humorously chill. But this is more than just funny. This is a guy who is being extremely relatable while still being a world-class uh, figure skater. And who can't relate to the uh, feeling of being left out of something or being upset and then going to uh, try to drown your uh, sadness and sorrow in junk food. I feel like I do that like once a week. <laughs> <laughs> he also later had a product placement for Xanax. He referred to wanting to make Reese Witherspoon proud. As you noted in your piece, Justin, this is a guy, he's 28 years old. This is his first Olympics. He's an adult. He like knows what image he wants to present. And he's able to present it to NBC, Stefan. Yeah, and it, it, it's, it's that, I think, adultness that makes him so compelling. He's a thoughtful guy. He's an out American athlete. And he's willing to talk about his sexuality. He's willing to talk about his, his, his journey as an athlete. He doesn't sugarcoat the fact that being an athlete is, is sort of mindless and a slog and a long trail to get to this point and he's not afraid to sort of celebrate the fact that hey i made it here like this is cool like yeah we we failed in 2014 and we had in and out burgers and now we're here yeah that's the thing it's that like people are not averse to like celebrating the fact that they made it to the olympics they're just not able to do it in a way that's at all interesting, interesting. or articulate yeah yeah, um, they don't come with a relatable anecdote already like package to lead off with to draw people into watching them and say, gosh, I got to keep my eye on this guy, see what he has to say next. So um, Ripon and Gus Kenworthy are both out. Kenworthy, um, snowboarder, came out after Sochi. Um, and they've been, you know, talking about their friendship. They um, have both been extremely adamant about being upset that Mike Pence is leading the American delegation. And again, with Ripon, like, he's been very specific about the fact that the fact that um, Pence's former support, which Pence denies, but there's a record of it, of, um, you know, supporting gay conversion therapy is the reason that he doesn't um, support Pence, the reason that he doesn't want to meet with Pence. Um, and Stefan, that um, was something that you noted, right? That this was like particularly remarkable that he was being that politically outspoken at his first Olympics. Yeah, and not only that, I, what I noticed during the coverage of the team event was that NBC hadn't brought it up during his skate that he was an out athlete and that he was involved in this controversy. And then much to my pleasure, 
Mike Tirico asked him about it in that same post-game interview that we listened to a clip of before. So let's play another clip here. I want to ask you something, uh, because your name has come up a lot. You came out as openly gay in October 2015. There have been a lot of stories written about that, including the vice president's involvement. But you've said you're not going to let it be a distraction at the Olympics. That's a lot to say. How about doing it in practice? Has it distracted you in any way? You know, I've worked my entire life for this moment. But more than that, my mom always taught me to stand up for what I believe in. And that's sort of given my skating a, a greater purpose. And so I go out there and I'm not only representing myself, I'm representing my coaches, I'm representing my country, I'm representing my teammates. And I remember that. And that's how I stay focused. I'm actually surprised, Stefan, that you thought that was a good question because it, um, you know, it's based on the canard that the only, you know, reason to mention politics or think about politics is to question whether it might be a distraction from the thing that's actually important, well, which is I, the skating. I what was interesting was that he brought it up at all. But he kind of brought it up in a negative way. He brought it up in an oblique way. He didn't bring it up in a direct way, but he brought it up. And I think Rippon's response was completely measured and it wasn't the full force of what he had said earlier. But it also says to me that Adam Rippon is pretty savvy when it comes to understanding which media he's talking to and when, and that, you know, he's demonstrating clearly as Sam Borden had a piece about him this morning on ESPN, that you can be a strong athlete, a strong teammate, and a strong advocate all at once. That wasn't sort of the full bore of his feelings, but for prime time on NBC, it was measured enough that he got the point across. What's interesting to me about Rapon is this is his first Olympics, but I'm sure he's aware that it may well be his last also. You don't see too many 32-year-old uh, male figure skaters uh, out there competing for America. Nathan Chen uh, is, what, 17, 18, like 19 years old? Adam Rapon has one shot to win the Olympics, and uh, he's doing it as best he can, both on the ice and off. And maybe not win the Olympics, but one shot to make a mark at the Olympics. Oh, he's winning the Olympics. Yeah. Though. He's, he's winning won- the Olympics. Yeah. He is the big winner <laughs> of, the, the of the opening weekend. So geopolitically, Justin, the two uh, big stories... Um, in the first few days of the games are Olympic athletes from Russia and that farce and how it's actually playing out. And then the kind of North Korean propaganda efforts um, around the games and how they've been kind of successful. The cheer squad is just so delightful, as you wrote about. Why don't we start with the North Korean cheer squad first and let's listen to a little clip of them in action. So if anyone who lives with, around, or near me uh, knows, I've been walking around for the past two days tonelessly sort of humming the uh, North Korean cheer tune uh, (laughs) to the great annoyance of, you know, everyone in the vicinity, including myself, but I can't get it out of my head, um, that and their other uh, things. And I think that just goes to show, A, how sort of, odd and basic a person I am, but uh, how sort of interesting this story is. Um, oh, also how effective that, their propaganda clearly is. Yeah, yo, yeah exactly. How effective. As a minister of, uh, of, of information in, in Pyongyang. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, North Korea wants to use the games as a propaganda tool. So does every nation to a point, but North Korea more than most. And as part of their propaganda offensive, they brought 230 um cheerleaders, uh, Kim's army of beauties, as he calls them, to uh, Pyeongchang. And they've been showing up here and there wherever a North Korean athlete is to be found. They sit all together in the stands. They engage in synchronized routines. They sing, they dance, they sway. They capture the attention of the people sitting around them, the people watching at home. And uh, the effect is very much to have people associating North Korea with these uh, musical young women and not with the uh, horrors of... Yeah, the gulags uh, to which these young women's families have luckily been threatened with uh, being sent to if any of them happen to defect uh, when they're at the Olympics. So, you know, it's a charm offensive and it seems to be working. There is a fine line, Stefan, around how we should talk about and cover the North Koreans because there is just like a novelty factor here. We never get to see representatives of this nation. Um, They're obviously hugely important geopolitically right now. Um, Kim Jong-un's sister has kind of like cut what some have described as a dashing figure at the Olympics, just like kind of ludicrous the coverage that, um, that she's received. And so... And it's inevitable that um, anything North Korea says or does is going to be covered. And just because of the volume of coverage, it's inevitable that people are going to fuck up and and make mistakes around it and maybe celebrate them or uh, lavish them with the wrong kind of attention. I don't know if that if that's uh, putting it the right way. I think it is putting it the right way. I mean, the, the, the only takeaway from the cheer squads is that they are creepy. I mean, it is it is scary to watch this. It. It freaks me out. I would like to know how they have managed to secure so many seats in these arenas. Because, Justin, you said they were all together, but there have also been events where there are like 100 of them or like 60 of them in one place and 60 in another and 60 in another. And and they sort of draw your eye in the arena. They're all obviously dressed the same in these bright red outfits. They are swaying. They are sort of ignoring the music on the PA system and doing their Completely own thing. Completely ignoring it the music. It is so Stepford <laughs> that it is really, really disturbing to watch, I find. Yeah, um, it's sort of a stereo effect sometimes where they're, you know, coming at you from literally all sides of the arena. And it is super creepy. Um, I also sort of, as I'm watching them, I'm like, well, this this is weird. North Korea sucks. It's a horrible place. That said, who's to say that, you know, these some of these individual members of the cheer squad aren't themselves, you know, taking some sort of pride in uh, their activity. Like, I'm sure the training they have to go through is just as sort of arduous and harsh and all-consuming as the North Korean athletes who are also competing at the Olympics. And, you know, part of the notion of the Olympics in the most idealized state is that it's, you know, broadening. And I suppose that one would hope that being exposed to the outside world and then returning to North Korea and having sort of experienced it in some way contributes to the sort of longer term dissolution of the uh, oppressive regime there. 
Um, the Olympic athletes from Russia thing is really weird. I mean, I think we all knew going into these Olympics that it made no sense. But just the fact that Olympic athletes from Russia with the little Olympic five ring icon next to their name on, on the screen is like competing in a team event is just like the internal illogic and inconsistency of it is just mind boggling. I mean, the whole point of it was that Russia is not allowed to compete in these games. Some individual athletes through whatever stupid um, vetting process they went through to show that, you know, folks weren't part of the state sponsored doping system, you know, we'll let them through, but they won't be representing Russia. They'll just be competing under the Olympic flag as, as citizens of the world and of no particular country. And then somehow you have these people competing together as a team, but they're supposed to just be individuals. It doesn't make any sense. So should they have not been allowed to compete in ice hockey or in yes, this team obviously. figure skating? Right. <laughs> I mean, I, it but seems I like not a very hard remember, problem. I don't recall yeah. anyone even <laughs> suggesting that they be banned from the team sports. I could be wrong. I guess it just didn't occur to me, but it just seems so obvious when you see it on the screen, the whole point of it was that they were competing as individuals right, and they not as Russians. It to Olympic athletes from Russia, yeah. should say Olympic team from Russia. <laughs> I mean, it's just so stu- it's just so stupid. I mean, you either let them let them in the Olympics or don't let them in. I mean, this um, you know this kind of half measure it ends up being like a ninety nine point nine percent measure. I mean, Russia is in the Olympics. There's like no mistaking it. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> And it becomes this weird, you know, euphemistic uh, battle for commentators to, you know, having to completely use the, you know, you know, clumsy phrase Olympic athletes from mm-hmm. Russia. Yeah, you end up kind and of unintentionally carrying the water for the IOC if you call them Olympic athletes from Russia rather than Russians. Yeah. Which they clearly are. They're clearly <laughs> Russians competing as a team of Russians for Russia. <laughs> There's no mistaking it, Justin. What was your favorite athletic moment from the opening weekend? I loved uh, I, I love the slope style snowboarding. Um, it's been a brutal uh, uh, couple days on that course. The winds have been super high. You love it to see athletes stop. failing due to due to poor weather conditions. <laughs> to the That's, competition being I completely do, compromised by the weather. <laughs> it's uh it's been completely compromised though i mean i was shocked they even let the uh slope style women's final go forward yesterday they had to cut down the final runs from uh three to two they cut out the qualifying rounds entirely every single run like seemed to end with uh an athlete after athlete falling on one of the jumps uh jamie anderson won gold less through excellence than by default she was one of the few to actually complete a uh a run without you know stumbling or falling uh but the fact that it's so hard makes it to me at least that much more exciting when you see someone overcome the elements and really uh, laid down a solid uh, run, and that's what I really loved about uh, Red Gerard's victory uh, a couple of days ago. Um, he fell twice his first two runs. He, you know, got off of his first run, clutching his back. And when I was watching, I'm like, "Well, that guy's out. Uh, good luck uh, in high school when you get back <laughs> to the states." Uh, but then, you know, he he made it um, on his third run. He made it down and. 
he was executing everything. So the first rails uh, section went well, executed that flawlessly. Jump one, nailed it. Jump two, nailed it. The third jump on the slope style course is this massive ramp where you got to go down and pick up momentum to uh, to hit it. And when he came off and you know landed this triple cork uh, 1440 maneuver, where his Look body was simultaneously off. Yeah, I got all, I got all the terminology. I did my Wikipedia research. Uh, he's somersaulting and corkscrewing and lands, and the crowd just exploded, both because it was a great run, and finally someone nailed something that seemed of Olympic caliber, and it was a 17-year-old kid who did it. It was awesome. I'm going to offer a counterpoint here when it comes to the women's competition. Chico Harlan of the Washington Post tweeted out, some words uttered by other riders about the weather. Dangerous, shit show, not even snowboarding if you ask me. Literally a case of survival. I think they should have canceled it. Um, I think we need to end with a clip from Red Gerard's post-victory uh, press conference. You got Adam Rippon leading us off in this segment. <laughs> Let's end with a little bit of wisdom from the 17-year-old Redmond Gerard. And what are you going to do with it once you get your hands on that gold medal? Yeah, I'll look at it for quite some time. I don't know. <laughs> Excuse me, but uh, I, I got a Snapchat this morning at like 8.30 when I was taking a bus up, and they were all shotgunning beers on the way to the mountains. So I'd say that... And if there's one thing you could say to them right now, what would that be? Um, yoo-hoo. I don't, yeah. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Great. <thing. As> far <laughs> Justin. What I have to say to you after that opening weekend of Olympic excitement is yoo-hoo. Yoo-hoo, my friend. <laughs> yoo-hoo, fellas. Yoo-hoo to everyone. Justin Peters writes about the Olympics for Slate. Uh, check out our coverage, slate.com slash something. I'm not sure, but just go to Slate. It's all over the homepage. Justin, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In a moment, we're going to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers trade deadline wizardry. After that, we will have Grant Wall on to talk about the U.S. soccer presidential election. Then for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Grant will be back. We'll talk about his upcoming book on the best international soccer players in all the world. There's a chapter in there on Christian Pulisic. Grant will share some insights uh, about Pulisic and other folks that he learned during his reporting. If you want to hear that, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. At around this time last week, the Cleveland Cavaliers, or at least an earlier version of the Cleveland Cavaliers, were getting outscored 65 to 31. I watched that game. I just have to pause here. I watched that game. It was unbelievable how bad they were. That was a half of basketball. I'm going to get, I'm going to get back to my, to my sentence, but I just needed to pause 
and just announce that that was like the worst half of basketball I'd ever seen. Anyway, they're getting outscored 65 to 31 in the second half by the Orlando Magic, the Magic being one of the worst teams in the NBA. Five days later, the Cavs went on the road and destroyed the Boston Celtics 121 to 99. It was the most points the Celtics have given up all season. During the intervening period uh, between that Orlando game and the Boston game, Cleveland general manager Kobe Altman traded away six players that tended towards the old and the decrepit. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, Dwayne Wade, Derek Rose, Simon Schumpert, Channing Frye, like Anton Jameson, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> Who are some of the other, the other like, what was that guy? Sasha Pavlovic maybe was involved. Mark, um, Mark Price's expiring contract. <laughs> <laughs> they got back the younger and spryer Jordan Clarkson, Larry Nance Jr., George Hill, and Rodney Hood. Uh, piping up on the line there was Jack Hamilton. He's a professor at uh, the University of Virginia and Slate's pop critic. His Slate Academy on pop and race in the 1960s is a great reason to join Slate Plus. It was a, an amazing series. Um, he's also, like like me, obsessed with the Cleveland Cavaliers and wrote a great piece about the Cavs reshaping themselves for Slate last week. Uh, welcome, Jack. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. So the point of your piece, Jack, was that like most things that happen in, in the NBA, that these trades were all about pleasing and appeasing LeBron James and trying to make sure that he uh, stays in Cleveland. And based on the sample size of four quarters in Boston, <laughs> seems like it worked really damn well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, you know, a very, very small sample size. Um, but yeah, I mean, a- as of yesterday, uh, the trades look fantastic. Um, you know, they, it definitely looked like a completely different Cavs team than the one that got blown out by the by the Magic less than a week ago, um, and it is a diff- completely different different Cavs team. Um, you know, they really they they they're doing something pretty unprecedented, which is attempting a mid season tear down slash rebuild, um, which I don't think I can't remember any NBA team doing anything like this, uh, particularly not a team. Uh, that that has championship aspirations. Um, they're really rebuilding on the fly. And yeah, you know, yesterday uh, the results looked fantastic. It'll be really interesting to see um, how it how it sustains itself in the future. But it almost seems that the point of this exercise has nothing to do with whether the Cavs are rebuilt to win this year's NBA title. To me, the point of this exercise seems to be to demonstrate that LeBron James has the opportunity to win almost no matter who is he surrounded by, except for these this terrible cast of characters that <laughs> yeah. he just had. So now let's... He can win with any team except, except the exact the, the, team that he had. Except for the really <laughs> bad team. So let's just upgrade it slightly and differently and tweak it. I mean, isn't the message here that LeBron James is so good that he doesn't need two other all-star starters. I mean, that's been the point of almost his whole career, except for the Miami interlude where he had sort of one all-star starter with him. Well, I have a lot to say about about that and everything around this topic. (laughs) Um, But, you know, nobody's going to win the title. Nobody's going to beat the Warriors with like a normal team. You have to have like the best team in the history of the NBA to beat the Warriors. And so, um, you know, the notion of LeBron winning with anyone, you can win the Eastern Conference with anyone. But LeBron mm-hmm. can come close to winning with a cast of not quite misfits, but of not Kevin Durant and everybody else. So fair. But um, 
The thing that I really love about the NBA circa 2018 is just like how many conspiracy theories there are to spin out <laughs> and how fun that is. And I don't think it's actually a conspiracy, Jack, that like LeBron over the last two or three weeks, we were talking about this. We were chatting during that Orlando game just about how clear it was that he wasn't trying. And it seemed like if he bore some responsibility for the fact that Cleveland was so bad going into this trade deadline, and I feel like he was playing badly on purpose to try to impress upon management in Cleveland that they really needed to upgrade the roster. Like, if if you're saying, Stefan, that LeBron can carry anyone and make any team look good, he wasn't really, you know, pulling his weight uh, for, for the last few weeks. And then on Sunday, Jack, against the Celtics, dude was, like, playing at, like, 500 miles per hour. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that a large part of uh, the sort of boon of this trade uh, or these trades what was actually psychological um, for LeBron. I, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, watching that Orlando game in particular, but really just the last few weeks, he's looked really checked out and kind of... Um, you know, just seems really seemed really disillusioned with the players that they had. He didn't seem to be having a good time. Um, and I mean, one of the things that's kind of interesting, I was listening to uh, Brian Windhorst on um, Zach Lowe's podcast earlier this week, and um, Windhorst said that LeBron actually was informed about the trades prior to the Minnesota Timberwolves game, which was the sort of first step in the turnaround when LeBron went out and basically uh, won the game in over, overtime by himself. Or he was, he was informed that there were, there were trades in the works, um, which was the day before the trade deadline. So it's really interesting that it's like, it almost seemed like just the knowledge that he wasn't going to have to play with these <laughs> yeah. guys anymore was like, you know, the, the spark that, is, that has created this turnaround. Which is totally fine to me. I mean, LeBron James has more agency than any player in the history of the NBA, except for one, Michael Jordan. And he's maybe, given the, the, the nature of the NBA business, he has more than Jordan ever oh, did. Oh, definitely more than Jordan. Yeah, I, think, and I think he does. And he's wielding it effectively, as he should. I mean, he's sitting there in Cleveland with this crazy guy for an owner, with a front office that is certainly not... Experienced. Experienced. And he must look at, say, Golden State... And they're sort of mature, progressive, thoughtful, caring about the players and the entire roster ethos and say, what the fuck am I wasting my time here for? Where are the adults to help me? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's a good point around psychologically there's a weight lifted off of him. I'm still going to ride with my conspiracy that he just was – in intentionally not trying very hard which is fine i think sure <laughs> yeah. like good for him that's the right re- nba regular season tank yeah. it we're into we're into tanking here yeah now i think um the funny thing about that timberwolves game is that lebron had to like make like eight different game winning shots because even with the knowledge that they were going to get rid of those guys that they were still like gave up 138 yeah. points because <laughs> they have like a world world historically awful defense and like watching that game on sunday like Jordan Clarkson and Rodney Hood from the Lakers and the Jazz, respectively, like not known for being great defenders. Larry Nance and George Hill, the former from the Lakers, the latter from the Sacramento Kings, are known for being good defenders. But really the boon here was that these guys are not Isaiah Thomas <laughs> and Dwayne Wade and, you know, Derek Rose from a defensive standpoint, that they're actually like trying. And, you know, there's very limited practice time 
Jack. Um, you know, they're going to have the all-star break. They're going to need a little bit of time to work together. But just the difference that can be made with energy and effort and I guess having people with more defensive ability. But just like watching this team like this year, just like not run, just like literally not running back on defense. It's like these people were trying and – you know, they well, were to, good. And to go back to the point you made earlier, Josh, it's almost as if LeBron looked at the people around him and said, you should respect me more. Like, it's disrespectful to him to play so badly. Right, yeah. Yeah, that was definitely an issue, it seemed like. A lot of people have mentioned this, that particularly with the di- dynamic between him and Isaiah Thomas, that there was uh, a phrase I heard many times was that Isaiah had not properly uh, kissed the ring, um, that he was not he was not um, sufficiently sort of deferential to LeBron, and that that really showed. In particular, I mean, I'm I'm a huge Isaiah Thomas fan, being being from Boston. Um, but yeah, I mean, those guys were not work, working well together. I mean, you could tell it's LeBron seemed to uh, really just sort of openly despise playing playing with Thomas. Um, and now, yeah, I think he's got he's got guys around him who are gonna who are gonna be more uh, deferential and sort of fit into uh, the system as he wants it. I think the big question is. Um, you know, I think this this team still has a pretty massive talent gap in terms of their previous teams, um, you know, which stems from the trade of the trading of Kyrie Irving over the summer. Um, and in the in the playoffs, I think that that's that's really going to show. And, uh, you know, when Kevin Love comes back, he's going to need to play really well um, for them to be able even in the Eastern Conference, you know, leave, leaving aside if they make the finals. But uh, yeah, this is a team that that lacks, um, you know, the the three superstars that they had they had previously, and adding a bunch of these little pieces um, who are who are all you know pretty good. Uh, but you know, when the playoffs come, rotations shorten, um, things like that, and it becomes becomes a more star driven uh, style of play. And obviously, they they still have the greatest basketball player on earth, but it's going to be it's going to be a challenge to see um, how that how that shakes out in the playoffs. So Kobe Altman does deserve a lot of credit for us even having this conversation. He stepped in when Dan Gilbert, the Cavs owner, refused to give general manager David Griffin um, you know, the money that I think Griffin felt he deserved. And there's been questions around whether Altman is really even in charge or if um, you know, uh, Dan Gilbert is running the show. But like I think, you know, Kevin Pelton of ESPN like had a good piece uh, looking back and saying, you know, the Cavs have gotten a lot of crap for the Kyrie Irving trade, but like everybody thought that was a really good trade for them at the time. Like the, the Kevin Pelton piece about like, what did I get wrong? Reminded me of like Nate Silver writing about how mm-hmm. did I not see Donald <laughs> Trump winning yeah. the Republican <laughs> primary. Um, but, you know, if you looked at the trade at the time, you're like, Isaiah Thomas was really good the previous year. He's just going to be out for some of the regular season, but the regular season doesn't matter that much. Um, Jay Crowder is like a guy who could defend Kevin Durant and other wing players. They're getting the Nets pick. Like, obviously, this is a great move for the Cavs. It's just like amazing how badly that deal worked and just like and how quickly. I'm a, I'm a big Isaiah Thomas fan too, but just he single, I believe strongly yeah. that he single handedly tanked their season, both with um, things that weren't his faults, like his hip was clearly still giving him trouble. But the fact that he played so many minutes and played so badly, um, didn't make shots and was bad on defense and then seemed to blame everyone other than himself Mm -hmm. for it in the locker room. And just 
they needed to get away from him. They needed to get him off the team. And the fact that they were able to do so and get some players that can actually help them, it's like all credit to Kobe Altman, man, because, you know, if you trade Kyrie Irving and you get like guys who just are playing really badly, the fact that you still have a chance to recover and make the finals is just remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that this uh, the the trade deadline activity and sort of dumping all these guys. I mean, dumping. You know, they now have dumped um, most of the assets that they got for in the Kyrie trade. I mean, excluding the Nets pick, which I think Kobe Altman should get a lot of credit there too for not trading that pick. There was a lot of pressure uh, to to sort of you know sell low on that pick. Uh, to get bring in someone like DeAndre Jordan, who I don't think would have been, you know, is, is not the piece that's going to make this a championship team. Um, yeah, but I think that uh, the case with Isaiah Thomas, it really was just poisonous um, watching that. Like in the in the Minnesota game on on Wednesday night, which was just spectacular, particularly the ending. Um, LeBron made three consecutive plays: two on the offensive end, one on the defensive end, to to seal the game, and on. The, this shot that he made to tie the game, uh, Isaiah was standing at the top of the key uh, behind the three-point line, theatrically waving his <laughs> arms around for, for, for LeBron to pass him the ball. And it's just like, I remember watching that and just being like, you know, you cannot do that to LeBron James. He is not going to, he is not going to suffer that. It, you know, it was Isaiah showing him up on the court. And then when I, when LeBron made uh, that, that game-tying layup, uh, Isaiah kind of just, turned his back and sulked his way to the to the other end of the court and that was really the moment I, I that it became clear to me that like you know they just had to had to get rid of Isaiah it's uh, not that um, you can't do that to LeBron it's that you shouldn't do that to mm-hmm. LeBron that right. you should be self-aware enough to know how many times LeBron has single-handedly won games in similar situations that you put your damn hands down and you congratulate him after he makes the shot that allows you to win the game I think yeah. I totally agree with everything you guys are saying. I feel like people listening might think that that's like stupid to say, but like to be clear, Isaiah said and did other things that were like right. way mm-hmm. worse. Like saying in the locker room after a game that their coach just like didn't know how to make any halftime adjustments and like claiming that nobody on the team was playing defense when there's like right. James Harden esque Zapruder footage of Isaiah <laughs> just basically standing there and not doing anything. I mean, the guy was just, it seemed like he was intentionally trying to like talk his way out of town. And maybe that's not surprising either. I mean, certain athletes aren't good at sublimating their own egos to play under a player who is so vastly superior to them and is going to so vastly diminish their role here. So just as LeBron might have been tanking to engineer some trades, maybe Isaiah was tanking to get the hell out of there and do what Kyrie Irving also wanted to do because he felt that he couldn't be the superstar that he wanted to be playing next to LeBron. Yeah, I mean, Isaiah, Isaiah is, a, is, you know, just a, such a spectacular player when he's healthy. But he's also, you know, he's a five foot nine guy who's who's turned himself into a offensive superstar. Like you don't you don't get that way without being wired in, in, a, in a sort of way that makes you think that you're the one who should be taking the final shot of the game, even when you're on LeBron James's team. Um, and that was yeah, I mean, this was something that, you know, a lot of people wondered, even if Isaiah had been healthy I'm not sure how well he and LeBron would have, would have coexisted on this team. Jack Hamilton is a professor of uh, LeBronology and other subjects at the University of Virginia. They might be surprised to, to hear that, the administration, but we know, <laughs> we know what's up. 
He's the also Slate's, <laughs> he's, he's also Slate's pop critic, and he did the Slate Academy on pop and race in the 1960s. Jack, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After the men's national team bombed out of World Cup qualifying, the calls to burn down the U.S. Soccer Federation were immediate and they were loud. Longtime Federation President Sunil Gulati declined to seek a fourth term and a stampede of outsiders ran for the job, including ex-players like Eric Winalda, Kyle Martino, and Hope Solo. The election was on Saturday and none of those people won. Instead, the new Federation president is Carlos Cordero, a former Goldman Sachs executive and Federation board member. Our friend Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated and Fox Sports was at the election in Orlando, Florida. He is with us now. Hey, Grant. Hey, how are you guys? We are good. So the people who vote for the leadership of the U.S. Soccer Federation decided not to blow it up. Why not? Well, I I think there are a lot of built-in advantages for people who are inside the system and running for U.S. soccer president. You had eight candidates in this race. That's a lot for the first contested U.S. soccer presidential election since 1998. Two of the candidates, though, were viewed as insiders. Kathy Carter, who is the on-leave president from Soccer, Soccer United Marketing, MLS's marketing arm, was the choice of the MLS owners to start. Uh, as well as Don Garber and Sunil Gulati, the two most powerful people in U.S. soccer. Carlos Cordero, also viewed as an insider. He's been the vice president of U.S. soccer the last two years, an independent board member nine years before that. So he was somebody who was known inside the, the federation by the people who vote. And I think one thing that became very clear here is that the public doesn't vote. If the public was voting, one of the outsider candidates would have won this election but I think there was a feeling inside the Federation uh, and the people who vote that uh, they wanted to go with someone they knew better. You wrote in your piece for SI Grant that Cordero admits he's not a soccer expert and will soon be part of a collaborative process to hire two U.S. soccer general managers. And these are positions that will oversee technical decisions. So is it fair to say that for um, those of us who don't particularly care about the inner workings of U.S. soccer, but just want to see a better product on the field, that these general manager hires will be more important than uh, Cordero himself? Oh, yeah. From a soccer perspective, you know, you have a situation here where Cordero is saying, I am not a soccer expert, and he doesn't want to be the one who is the only one choosing who the next U.S. men's and, for that matter, women's national team coaches are. That's why he's going to hire experts who can do that. And so uh, there's a lot of people who see Carlos Cordero and say, well, this guy is not a change candidate. But that would be a huge change from the previous administration under Gulati. Gulati drew a lot of flack 
for his handling of Jurgen Klinsmann. Most people, including me, felt like he waited way too long to fire Jurgen Klinsmann, should not have given him a contract extension before World Cup 2014, and that that was a huge reason why the U.S. failed to qualify for the World Cup. Uh, Cordero's got a different situation here. He's going to hire these newly created positions of general manager, one inside U.S. soccer for the men's side, one for the women's side, and those general managers are going to be in charge uh, of hiring coaches with the approval of the CEO, Dan Flynn, and eventually the board, including Cordero. So he's going to be part of the, the process, but certainly not the decider. It seems to me that electing someone like Carlos Cordero sends a kind of message to soccer and to the future of the structure of soccer. Like, did you want an unpaid president, which is what this job is, to be a figurehead, someone who can rally the passions of the public, of youth soccer and development programs and talk about the next national team coach? Do you want him to be someone more like Sunil, well-connected inside of FIFA, whose job it is to establish the United States as a preeminent political and business power in the sport? Or is Cordero sort of somewhere, something even a little more different? He's more of a consensus candidate. He understands the business. He understands that developing U.S. soccer over the next decade or the four years that he might be in charge is really a business proposition. But at the same time, we need to cater to the public and he says he's willing to let soccer people do that. Should he bring in someone like Kyle Martino, who struck me as the most reasonable, most grown up of the player candidates, and give him a formal position as the soccer leader of the U.S. Federation? Well, Martino is out because his contract with NBC Sports stated that he had to come back to NBC mm. if he was not elected president. So he cannot become the vice president. But maybe somebody like Martino, somebody with... Uh, a soccer mind. Uh, we'll have to wait and see here who the candidates are that emerge for the U.S. men's general manager. Uh, they did say U.S. soccer that they want to make that decision fairly soon here, and that will be the person who is most involved with the hiring of the new men's national team coach. So that that may not happen until after the World Cup. I'm hoping that is the case because I think you're going to see some candidates who are coaching in that World Cup emerge as possible next U.S. coaches. So, Grant, there was a piece from Jeff Cameron, a uh, place for the U.S. national team, pretty much like always a starter on the national team, except for in the final game against Trinidad, where um, they failed to get the point they needed to qualify for the World Cup. Um, Cameron does not appear to be willing to let bygones be bygones. He's, um, you know, he blames himself partly for the U.S. not qualifying, but he blames a lot of other people more than himself. Um, and he blames U.S. soccer, blames Bruce Arena, the coach, and says that the Arena tenure was, you know, the, the bad old days, basically, that the players got too comfortable. And the thing I, find, I found particularly fascinating was that he was looking back kind of fondly on the Jurgen Klinsmann era, at least in some ways, and talking about how Klinsmann put them under pressure in a good way, that he wanted the players to go to Europe to test themselves, that you know, this is what they needed um, to be able to compete at the highest international level. Are you, like, beyond Cameron, are you kind of seeing or hearing any kind of reassessment of, like, maybe we didn't know how good we had it under Jurgen Klinsmann? Or is that really not the case? 
I mean, for me, that seems a little silly. I mean, Jurgen Klinsmann had some good ideas, and he was a terrific recruiter of dual nationals in a way that other U.S. coaches had not been to get guys to commit to the United States. Uh, the problem with Klinsmann was that in the execution of actual coaching decisions, he didn't communicate with his players very well, and he didn't plan very well. And we saw that in the loss at home to Mexico, uh, which started off this horrible qualifying campaign where uh, he tried something completely different, introduced it in terms of a formation right before the game, and the players didn't really know what was happening and convinced Glensman to switch back early in that game to what they had been doing. Um, so... When I look at Jeff Cameron, I think it's crazy that he was not playing in the last several games for the United States and World Cup qualifying. Uh, that's insane to me. He's a guy who should be uh, starting in the central defense every single game for the United States. He's that good. He's a leader. Uh, and instead, Omar Gonzalez was on the field, uh, a Bruce Arena guy, and didn't play as well. Uh, so I, I definitely think that's the case. But uh, I also look at uh, at some of the stuff Cameron is saying, and I think I agree you should have uh, more U.S. players going to Europe like Cameron, like Christian Pulisic, uh, and yet uh, I think here's a situation where Jeff Cameron is unhappy at Bruce Arena because Bruce Arena didn't play him, and Jurgen Klinsmann did. One of the things that Cameron said, and I think this will help us pivot back to the election of a new president at U.S. soccer and the future of the organization, is that he asserted that the previous culture of the team created this poisonous divide, he said, between Major League Soccer players and European players. And until that culture is torn down, the U.S. men's national team will continue to slide backwards, he wrote in this Players' Tribune piece. I think there's some validity there. So it seems to me that one of the things that Carlos Cordero is going to have to do on the men's side and maybe going forward on the women's side as more players go play in Europe is to find a way to unify players, to have to have people believe that it's in their best interest to not only go overseas, but to have sort of a, a, a recognition that the guys that are playing at high levels in Europe should be appreciated in different ways. Yeah, I don't know if I totally buy what Cameron's saying. Do I think that Michael Bradley, who's the MLS playing captain of the U.S. team, has an issue with European-based players? No, I don't. I, I think there has been a sense of maybe the some of the German-American players not mixing as well inside uh, the U.S. national team as they should. And that's partly on the captain, partly on the coaching staff to make sure that happens and that the best players can be on the field together. Um you know, when you look at the potential coaches who could be hired for the U.S. men's national team later this year, I think it's a really important decision. And for me, I'd love to see a guy like Juan Carlos Osorio, the Mexico national team coach who has experience in Europe and North America and South America come in and a guy who's encouraged Mexican players to go in bigger numbers to Europe uh, to bring things together and get the most out of the collective. I also think a guy like Roberto Martinez, the former Everton manager who's now coaching Belgium and could win the World Cup this year, uh, I think he'd be a terrific fit uh, as the U.S. men's national team coach. I would like to see that type of a hire instead of someone who is purely U.S.-centered in their, their history as a coach. Uh, because I do think those are skills, uh, you know, having coached in Europe, having worked at the international level, having worked and in, in coached in CONCACAF, who knows how the whole thing works. 
but, but also has a, a relationship and an understanding with the American player. Uh, so I think those two guys would be terrific hires, and we'll see if they're available after the World Cup. It's interesting that I read Cameron's comments as meaning the divide was created by management. Klinsman clearly was biased toward, and understandably, toward European players and didn't seem to have high regard for Major League Soccer, whereas Arena, who had coached in Major League Soccer for so long, seemed to be dismissive of those concerns and seemed to favor a lot of Major League Soccer players and particularly players that had been on his team before. So I think to avoid that kind of rupture going forward, you're right. We've got to find somebody who is, has a broader portfolio coming in. I think so. And, you know, just because a player plays in MLS doesn't mean he's bad, but just because he's come back to MLS in the case of a Michael Bradley or a Josie Altador, uh, you know, I'd like to see those guys be involved. I'd like to see a coach come in and challenge young players to do what Polisic and Weston McKenney have done. These are teenagers who are the next wave, actually the current wave in the case of Polisic, uh, the next wave of national team stars who have made the decision to try to go to Europe and do well, and they've established themselves there. Uh, so I think there's a balance in all of this stuff. And, and if you're talking about how the U.S. coach, whoever the next U.S. coach, approaches that balance of European-based players and North American-based players, uh, I think you need to have a feeling inside the team that one is not favored over the other. So the U.S. soccer fan base was really desperate for any kind of positive story after the World Cup flop. And then instead, um, there was another huge disappointment, which was the decision of uh, Jonathan Gonzalez, a young dual national player, um, American-born, um, Mexican heritage, who decided to play for Mexico recently. He's 18 years old. He's playing extremely well in Liga MX, the, the Mexican league. And there have been a lot of recriminations about this, that the U.S. was arrogant, that they didn't uh, recruit him as aggressively or smartly as Mexico did. How much do you think that Gonzalez's decision to play for Mexico rather than the United States is um, due to systemic problems? And how much of it is just um, the kind of over-dramatization of just one individual's decision? Well, I, I think in the case of Jonathan Gonzalez, he played 30 times for the U.S. youth national team and by all accounts was leaning toward the U.S. for a very long time. Uh, there's different factors here. The fact that he has a chance to play for Mexico at the World Cup this year is certainly a factor. He could not play for the U.S., obviously. Uh, but I Thanks think for also, the reminder, Grant. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you look at... Uh, Jonathan Gonzalez's situation, could the U.S. Soccer Federation have done a heck of a lot more to make sure that they landed him for the United States? Yes, yes, yes. And Gonzalez, in many ways, has become a symbol of, in the bigger picture, what U.S. soccer has not done to make the Latino soccer community in the U.S. feel more included. And uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And so, uh, I think the Gonzalez decision really focused people on that decision. But uh, there are so many Mexican-American players, male and female, in the U.S. And right now, uh, we're starting to see 
Mexican-Americans who grew up in the U.S., like Gonzalez, choosing to play for Mexico. Uh, he's not the only one. And this recruiting battle is going to be fascinating to watch. As I said, Klinsman, that was the one thing he did great. Nobody had any problems with Jurgen Klinsman's ability to land dual nationals, whether they were German-American, Icelandic-American, or Mexican-American. Um, and whoever comes in as the next U.S. coach, I think, that the U.S. Soccer Federation not only needs the coach to be engaged, but they need to hire someone whose sole job is to be a recruiter and land dual nationals. And if Gonzalez turns out to be as good as it looks like he is, this is going to be a scab that keeps getting picked at. This guy's going to be on the field for 15 years in U.S.-Mexico uh, games, reminding uh, American fans of you know the player that they, they could have had. And the U.S. isn't good enough to like be able to lose a guy who's a world-class player. No, and, and that's true. I, one thing I would say is that in this particular circumstance, there are some up-and-coming uh, U.S. players who have committed to the U.S. in that position. I mentioned Weston McKinney uh, already, uh, who's playing for Schalke in Germany. But yeah, that's a huge, huge blow not to have Jonathan Gonzalez with the U.S. moving forward. Uh, and I think hopefully that instead of causing U.S. soccer to just be defensive, which is kind of what they've been to this point, it will spur the U.S. Federation to say, look, here's what we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen again and get a John Calipari style recruiter in there just to get deal, you know, seal the deal, get these guys to commit to the U.S. And that only reinforces how important it is for Carlos Cordero to reach out and find methods, create ways of reaching out to the black communities, Hispanic immigrant communities to not only recruit the elite players, but to develop more players from these places. Yeah. I think also too, when you look at Carlos Cordero, I've known him for, for several years and he is one of those guys who does not act like he's the smartest guy in the room. Uh, and he really does want input from various people and wants to put res- give responsibility to those people inside the Federation to get things done. Grant Wall is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He's got a book coming out in May, Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play the 21st Century Game. Grant, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now is the time for Afterballs. And one of my favorite posts, uh, Olympic posts that we did on Slate over the weekend was uh, by Nick Green, the headline of which was, I long for the days when the Winter Olympics mascot was an abstract monster. The uh, Pyeongchang mascot is this very cute tiger, Suharang. I don't know if you've seen it on the podium. I can't even see it on the podium. They're all waving the thing on the podium. Little, little stuffed and, and cuddly guy. But as uh, Nick noted, um, the first Winter Olympics mascot from uh, Grenoble in 1968 was named Schuess, and it looked like a bulbous tomato atop a People's Choice Award. And that's really what you're looking for in a Winter Olympics mascot. There was also Schneeman. I, I really encourage you to look at Schneeman from Innsbruck, which Nick described as a single-horned frost Krampus, 
It is really terrifying. Let's do Schneemans Schneeman. for our after balls. And I need to warn the listeners that I'm Schneemanless this week. Stefan is, go- this is not going to be the doubles luge of after balls. Solo. Uh, Stefan is going to Schneeman us up. He'll, he's going to carry the, the American uh, squad. So Stefan, what is your Schneeman? Well, Josh, you can have your NBC primetime package, your live events, your internet streaming, your Jimmy Roberts interviewing rando reporters while wearing too many layers of clothing for someone who's sitting indoors. I will take the Olympic Channel News. Olympic Channel News is my new favorite feed of the games. It is produced by Olympic Broadcasting Services, which is a company owned by the International Olympic Committee that serves as the host broadcaster. It delivers feeds from every venue for the licensees who pay the IOC billions of dollars. And that is an excellent arrangement for transmitting signals from the Olympics. In terms of producing programming from the Olympics, not so much. If the Olympics were a Soviet socialist republic, and in some ways, of course, they are, Olympic Channel News would be the state-run broadcaster. Olympic Channel News is the Muzak of the games, the Yule Log of the rings, sometimes literally when it shows the Olympic flame for minutes on end between segments. That sounds awesome. Olympic Channel News, Josh, performs the amazing feat of imbuing the easy-to-manufacture drama of the Olympics with the excitement of an Ikea manual. Olympic Channel News is Olympics TV as if North Korea were producing Olympics TV, which maybe they are. The voiceovers are delivered by readers from various countries. I've heard British, Australian, Scandinavian, French, Eastern European accents. The scripts appear to be written not just by a bot, but by a committee of bots. The narration style and tone is a blend of a National Geographic video of a grizzly bear eating salmon from a stream, a Taiwanese animation, and a middle school sex education film circa 1957. Observe now how this first-time Olympic slope-style competitor moves his board into the correct position for entry into the ramp. The main component of Olympic Channel News is sports highlights. And I'm saying that in all caps because that's what the Chiron says. Sports highlights with the name of the sport highlighted below it. Every sports highlights segment concludes with images of curlers shaking hands or winners hugging losers, then interviews with the medalists. These are conducted in the mixed zone area near the finish line, but usually they're conducted after other media competitors and fans have left or are leaving which I especially like because watching people in the background walking out of luge or snowboarding or workers cleaning up or a snow vehicle beeping as it backs up in reverse enhances the insignificance of the moment. The interview questions make an NBA scrum look like a Socratic dialogue. These are some of the actual questions I have heard. What does it mean for you and your family? That feeling on the podium, can you describe it? How are you feeling about your individual performance? And my favorite so far, how proud are you to win this medal for Kazakhstan? <laughs> the in- <laughs> I think that's a question that uh, we all ask ourselves every day. Well, let me assure you, Josh, that Yulia Galasheva was very proud to have won bronze for Kazakhstan. I also liked this exchange between the microphone holder and a woman Russian mixed doubles curler. Question, even though you lost, how happy were you to play in the semifinals? Answer, very happy to play in the semifinals. 
Let's listen to these Chinese curlers. The other team played some very good shots and we made some mistakes. We have learned a lot from this Olympic experience and we need to keep learning. Yes, I really enjoyed the whole Olympics. I love that last one. The beauty of these interviews isn't that they are surprising in their mundanity. Most athlete interviews are terrible. We talked about this earlier in the show because Olympic athletes are obsessive psychopaths whom people want to talk to once every four years. The beauty is that they are unedited in letting them run on to mind-melting dullness. Olympic Channel News unintentionally performs a valuable service. It reveals the Olympics as less a crisply packaged, action-filled spectacle than a largely mundane series of events that don't last long and are difficult to understand. But Olympic Channel News is more than sports packages. It also dishes up human interest stories by the soporific minute presented with all the creative production value of C-SPAN turning on its cameras at a House Reparations subcommittee meeting. I watched gripping profiles of fishmongers at the port, of a volunteer translator, a college student working at the mountain, and Paul, an American who builds halfpipes. Of his path to the Olympic Winter Games, Paul was hired by the Swiss company that makes the machines used for building perfect halfpipes. We built a lot of relationships all over the world, and uh, it is kind of nice when you go someplace and they meet you with a smile and a handshake. They don't throw rocks or snowballs at you. And, uh, you know, everything has its time and its place, and every person does too. So we're going, shall we say, into our sunset. That had the added value of having the, the backing up snow vehicle beeping. I will say Paul does seem like a nice man, and I think I saw the profile of Paul like three times because Olympic Channel News pretty much is on a loop. But for sheer unintentional comedy, I am partial to the profile of the goaltender on Sweden's women's hockey team who was asked to explain the purpose of each piece of her equipment. She actually says at one point, this is a glove which you use to catch. And that is the essence of Olympic Channel News. This is a television channel which you use to show pictures. What is truly remarkable is that NBC has chosen to include Olympic Channel News in its coverage feed to devote the bulk of an entire channel to it, in fact. Did I mention, Josh, that there's music? Would you want to hear some of the Olympic Channel News theme song music? Sure. Olympic Channel News for all of your Olympic needs. I think that was enough Schneeman for the both of us. Great Schneeman. Best Schneeman ever. Uh, that is our show for today. Our Only pro- Schneeman ever. Our producer is Patrick Ford and our intern is Jason Rosenzweig. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out the Dear Prudence podcast, which lets you escape into someone else's problems for a while. Each week, the hilarious and insightful Mallory Ortberg and a guest tackle real-life problems from the outrageous to the everyday. Find it at slate.com slash dearprudence or wherever you get your podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zamo Beatty, and thanks for listening.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.